My charismatic friends sometimes ask me if this is a spirit-filled church. I say, absolutely. Thank you. Would you turn with me to 2 Kings 6? I said before numerous times in the series that miracles are one of the modes by which God makes himself known. There are moments in time when we get a fleeting glimpse of what God is really like. If I could put it this way, he, he blows his cover. He steps out of the shadows and he manifests himself as he really is. And we discover that wonderful fact that, that God really does love us. He likes us. He's very, very fond of us. He's very gracious, merciful, cares about us. And here in these first uh, seven verses of chapter 6, we have another one of those uh, appearances. I think of them as cameo appearances where the Lord just makes himself known for a, for a fleeting moment. And we get, get some glimpse of his character. Uh, God never gives us just one sign of his love. He confirms it with one uh, vision after another. And this is uh, one of those expressions, one of those manifestations of his character. The company of the prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pole. Let us build a place there for us to live. And he said, Go. Then one of them said, Won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elisha replied, and he went with them. They went to the Jordan and began to cut down trees. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh, my Lord, he cried out, it was borrowed. The man of God asked, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and he took it. The schools of the prophets were growing. We saw a couple of weeks ago, with reference to the school in Gilgal, that it had reached over 100 in size. And now the school at Jericho, I assume it's a Jericho because it was near the, near the Jordan River. That school was growing. Their meeting place had become too small and they wanted to enlarge it. So they asked Elisha for permission to go into the woods and cut timber and ask him to come along. So he agreed. And they went upriver to the foothills that surround Mount Lebanon to the wooded areas uh, there at the uh, mouth of the Jordan River, and they began to fell timber so they could float it downhill to this uh, building site. These were young preachers, as you know. They weren't used to hard work. And uh, one of them took a mighty cut, probably missed the limb altogether. Uh, his axe uh, handle hit the limb. The axe head broke off and flew into the water. One of the commentaries, uh, one of the commentators I read, Matthew Henry, put it so uh, quaintly. He said, one of them accidentally fetching too fierce a stroke, as those who work seldom are apt to be too violent, threw off his axe head into the water. And the man said, oh, my Lord, it was borrowed. Now, the word that's translated borrowed here is literally asked. And normally in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean borrowed. It may mean that, but more inclined to think that it was asked as a gift, and therefore it had a certain amount of sentimental value. It was probably, I don't know, maybe as an anniversary gift or a birthday present. And 
something he wanted very much and had asked for and had been given to him. It had very little intrinsic value, but for him, it had a great deal of sentimental value. Elisha uh, asked him where it fell, and the man pointed out the spot. Elisha took a stick and put it in the water, and the axe head flowed. Is the word to choose. It's the word to choose in Exodus to describe the waters of the Red Sea as they flowed over the heads of the Egyptians. It's used in Lamentations in that statement, waters flowed over me. And the man was able to uh, retrieve his uh, axe head. Now, some people would say, well, this isn't a miracle that Elisha just probed around with a stick until he found the axe head and then dragged it to the shallows. But uh, if that were true, it would hardly be worth mentioning so what, we would say. No, this was a true miracle. Elisha cut a stick and he put it in the water and some current agitated the, the water around the axe head and it flowed along the bottom to the feet of the young man that had lost the axe head and, and he uh, picked it up and was able to resume his, uh, his work. And once again, we have a, an earthly event that signifies a heavenly reality and it enshrines what I think is a simple but a very profound truth and that is that God really does care about the little things in our life. The trivialities and the nettlesome details of our life, the little things that bug us and back up on us and make life difficult for us, the lost coins, the small change of life, the lost keys, the lost contact lenses, all the things that... uh, We have to face through our life. Our Lord really does uh, care about those things. He doesn't always restore what's lost, but he cares. His reasons of his own for not helping us find something that was mislaid, but uh, we know that that it matters to him because we matter to him. My grandchildren sometimes uh, are brokenhearted over some small thing that they've lost, a toy, a doll or something, it has no value to me, but but my heart aches for them because I see their grief and because they matter to me, their little things matter to me. As Peter puts it, cast all your care upon him. All, underscore that word, cast all your care, all the little details of your life. Because he cares for you. There's a little chorus we used to sing when I was growing up. He cares for you. He cares for you. Through sunlight and shadow, He cares for you. Ray Stedman used to tell a story about uh, Susan, his his daughter, when she was about three or four years old. She was toddling around in his uh, study. He was trying to get some sermon preparation done, and she kept opening desk drawers and slamming them and getting into his paper clips and causing a lot of commotion and distracting him. And he tried to be patient with her until she slammed one of the dresser dra- uh, desk drawers on her finger and let out this horrible wail. And he picked her up and very unceremoniously put her outside the door and shut the door and said, go tell your mother. And she ran downstairs to Elaine and crawled on her lap and began to cry and cry and cry. And Elaine comforted her for a while. And then she said, uh, Susan, does your finger still hurt? She said, no, my finger doesn't, doesn't hurt anymore. And so Elaine said, well, why are you still crying? And she said, because Papa didn't say, oh. And I just uh, want you to know that our Heavenly Father says, uh, oh. 
our small worries, our, the trivialities of our life, the small stuff of life really does matter to him because we matter to him. Does Jesus care? The old hymn goes, when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song. As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Hebrews says we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmities. His heart aches with us. He cares for us. It occurs to me that uh, when this man retrieved his axe head, he probably carved a new uh, handle and went back to work. But I think he probably took his axe home and hung it on the wall. It's good for us to have these uh, tokens of God's tender, loving care. I hope you've got some reminders in your own life, in your memory, if not on your wall, of those times when God showed how, shows how wonderfully tender and compassionate he is. Now there's another story. Begins with uh, verse eight. Now the king was a uh, the king of Aram that would be Syria. The uh, the NIV consistently translates uh, uh, Syria as Aramea. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, "I will set up my camp in such and such a place." The man of God sent word to the king of Israel: "Beware of." passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Will you not tell me which one of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king, of Israel, the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Ben-Hadad II was the king of Syria at this time. And he was warring with Israel. It doesn't appear from the text that this was, uh, you know, these were, this was a full-scale engagement. It was a matter of border skirmishes, guerrilla raids. Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian of the first century, tells us that uh, that Ben Hadad wanted to capture and kill Jehoram. That was his primary motive. Jehoram used to hunt along the 
the borders of Israel down in the Jordan, what was called the Circle of the Jordan, the Jordan Valley at that time in history. This region of uh, Palestine was heavily wooded, and it was a prime habitat for lions and bears and other game animals, and Jehoram liked to hunt in that area, and uh, Jehoram hoped to ambush him and capture him and, and kill him there. But Elisha kept tipping off the king of Israel to the whereabouts of uh, the Syrian forces, totally frustrating Ben-Hadad's uh, efforts. Ben-Hadad uh, gathered his officers and tried to find out, find out who the informant was, and they said, well, it's Elisha. He hears everything that's going on in your bedroom. Ben-Hadad's bedroom was bugged. God overheard Ben-Hadad's pillow talk. There wasn't a thought, there wasn't a thing he said in his bedroom that God didn't hear and pass on to Elisha in the form of intelligence that he passed on to uh, Jehoram. I just want to tell you incidentally that your bedroom is bugged too. God hears everything that goes on in that, in that secret place. Ben-Hadad's scouts uh, located Elisha in the city of Dothan. He wasn't hard to find because he wasn't trying to be hard to find. He was temporarily residing in this uh, little city. So when they came back and reported on Elisha's whereabouts, Ben-Hadad sent a, a, a strong army, is the way he puts it, a big army, which is a typically pagan concept of power. The more the merrier. If some is good, more is better, and too much is just right. So here he sent this huge army to capture one, one man in the city of Dothan. Dothan is a little tiny settlement about 10 to 12 miles north of Samaria. It's up on top of a little hill with mountains around it. There's been quite a, a, a number of excavations carried out there, some of them by Wheaton College, and uh, they have found the city of Elijah's day. Very small, about the size of our property here in its uh, dimensions. There was, a, there was a wall there, but it was an earth rampart that had been built at an earlier period and was uh, very unsatisfactory. They had no defense system at all. They had no army there because Dothan had no strategic value. It wasn't really worth uh, defending. So they had no troops there. They had no wall that was worth considering. So the Syrian troops arrived at night, sized up the walls, decided there was nothing to be concerned about, set up their siege works, and bedded down for the evening. The next morning, Elisha's disciple, one of the sons of the prophets, got up to start, start preparing for their journey back to Samaria, their permanent residence. We think that's what he was doing because in those days, people didn't normally get up that early unless they were moving from one place to another as necessary to pack and travel in the cooler part of the day. And so he got up early to get ready to move, packed up the animals, looked over the walls, discovered to his dismay this enormous army surrounding the city of Dothan. Ran back to the place where Elisha was sleeping, shook him awake, said, Master, what are we going to do? Elisha uh, comes up to the walls and, and he looks around and and he says to his servant, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's always God's word to us when there are fightings without and when there's fear within. Is don't keep on being afraid. Fear is always the natural human reaction to circumstances that are out of control when we're 
outclassed and outgunned and outnumbered. We always feel fearful. That's a perfectly human emotion. The superhuman emotion is to give up that fear. That's why the Lord said to his disciples over and over again, don't keep on fearing. He understood that fear is an instinctual reaction to overwhelming circumstances, but his command was to don't keep on fearing. So we say, well, how come? <laughs> it's one thing to say don't keep on fearing. That, that sort of command addressed to our will really does no good unless we understand the basis for that, that entreaty. So Elisha takes him to the next step and he says, there's more of us than there are of them. And Elisha's servant looks at Elisha and he says, one, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He says, what is this, some kind of new math? And then we're told that Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. And when his eyes were open, he scanned over that landscape and he saw the Syrian army, but in vastly superior numbers, he saw the chariots and angels of God filling all the space where before he had just uh, seen, seen mountains. And so it is with us. Psalmist tells us that the angel of the Lord encamps around about us. We can't always see those encampments, but whether we see them or not, they're there. I've pointed out to you on numerous occasions that heaven is not way off there somewhere. Heaven is here. It's all around us. It's another dimension. We're not aware of it. We can't see it. But it is just as real, just as substantial, just as actual as the world that uh, we can see. Whether we can see it or not, it's there. It's real. I mentioned some months ago when our Lord ascended the Father is described as ascending a certain distance and then disappearing. He didn't go up into the air like a rocket shot. He disappeared because he stepped out of this realm into that invisible realm of the Spirit. And our Lord is here just as real as he was in the days of his flesh. He just lives in that invisible realm that's only accessible to the eyes of, of the heart. But he is really and truly there. Just as factual, just as actual, even more real than the world that we can see with our eyes. Now let me tell you where, where Elisha learned that fact, where he gained that insight. He learned it from Elijah. Probably the greatest of all the prophets. Remember our study in Elijah some months ago, and I pointed out that Elijah's ministry is a standard by which the ministry of all other prophets is, is gauged had an enormous impact on his times, turned his society around in, in a way in part, in large part, from Baal worship, which had become the state religion under Jezebel. Elisha was his uh, protege, his disciple. One day, Elijah and Elisha were walking uh, up the slope from the Jordan River off to the east, and uh, Elijah confided into Elisha that he, he was going home. He was, he was getting old. And he said to Elisha, what can I do for you? Elisha, as I pointed out then, didn't ask for fame or wealth. 
He didn't ask for any of the things we would, would normally ask for. He said, I want a double portion of your spirit. He's using spirit in the sense that Paul uses spirit when he says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a disciplined mind. That is a disposition, a perception, a way of of facing into life. Elisha said, I I want a double portion of that spirit. The double portion was the uh, right of primogenitor came to the the oldest son in the family, he's the one who inherited all the wealth of, of the, he inherited a double portion of the wealth of, uh, of the patriarch. And so what he was asking for was to be Elijah's successor, to carry on the ministry that he carried on, to have the kind of impact that Elijah had had on, on his times. Elijah said, you've asked a very hard thing. It's not easy to pass on the secrets of, of, of a person's success. You've asked a very hard thing. However, if you see me when I depart, then you'll have the double portion. That uh, test seems uh, almost like magic, seems trivial, but it, it, it wasn't. Because what Elijah was testing was Elisha's ability to see the transactions of the spirit world. Could he really see into that other realm with the eyes of his spirit? And you know the story. Elijah was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. To read that account carefully, he was not carried up in the chariots. The chariots came between Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was swirled up into the air in that whirlwind. And and the chariots, the horses and chariots of God came Between the two prophets and Elisha cried out, Oh, my father, the horses and chariots of God. He saw for a split moment into that invisible realm of reality. And and Elijah's mantle fluttered down to the ground. Elisha put it on and he then began to carry on the work that Elijah had, had left behind. See, he learned from Elijah to see that other realm. That's why Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says uh, that we should uh, follow the example of our uh, leaders and learn from their faith, not their methodology, not their technique, but from their faith. Because what enables us to have an impact on the world around us is not our intelligence, it's not our training, it's not our education, it's not our personalities, it's not our physical appearance. It is faith, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And that's what Elisha had learned from Elijah. Now, in a materialistic world like ours, the only thing that's real are the things that are seen. As that old philosopher Flip Wilson puts it, what you see is what you get. But is that really true? Are there not things that uh, are real? That cannot be seen? Of course there are. The world is filled with God and with his angels. As C.S. Lewis puts it, our world is crammed with God. He's all around us. No movement in space brings us any closer to him or any further away from him. He's available to us. He's just in that other dimension. He's not off there. He is, is here. The chariots of God are not a myth. They are really there. Now, uh, 
Faith is the means by which we lay hold of that unseen realm. In, in my thinking, faith is to the realm of spiritual things what the five senses are to the realm of, of the natural. It's the way we take our environment in. It's the way we understand it. It's the way we perceive it. Faith is the way that we grasp what is really true that, that we cannot see. It's the means by which we take this unseen realm of reality and bring it into our, our experience. But faith cannot be self-generated. You cannot make yourself believe the truth. I've said over and over again that spiritual things are discerned spiritually. It is by prayer that truth is moved from our heart, from our head into our hearts. That's the only way. You cannot think yourself into faith. We, we try to. You know, we grit our teeth and we try so hard to believe things that are very hard to believe. And it doesn't work. Believe me, it never works. It, it's prayer that moves the truth of God from the intellectual realm into the realm of, of our experience. That's true for others, too. Our staff was gathered last Thursday night, and we were talking about this principle, and someone raised the question, how do you get your children to realize that there's more than what you see and hear and taste and touch? And the only answer to that is that you really can't. You can live it before them. You can teach it to them. But you cannot translate that truth into life. Only the Spirit of God can. And so our task is to pray for them as Elisha prayed for his son. That his eyes would be open to, to see what otherwise cannot be seen. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians 1. Having laid out that glorious uh, description of the character of God and all of his beauty. He prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we may know all the dimensions of the knowledge of, of God. We cannot know it in our experience unless the Spirit of God does a supernatural uh, piece of work. Now, it's my, it's my experience that we are almost always uh, outgunned and outnumbered and our opponents always seem to have the edge. But if I understand this text correctly, that's false. We're never outnumbered. There's more of us than there are of them. I've been doing some research preparing for our study this fall in David and uh, relating the Psalms to various historical events in David's life. And I came across that Wonderful little psalm, Psalm 3, where David is writing out of his experience of, of the exile. He was driven off his throne by Absalom, his son. As he made his way across the Jordan, a nasty little man by the name of Shimei was throwing rocks at him and swearing at him. And his, uh, his soldiers tried to protect him as best they could, and the rocks were bouncing off his armor. And finally, he made his way to a quiet place, and his troops surrounded him, and, and David pulled out his sleeping bag, crawled in, and went to sleep. Slept all night. And out of that experience, he wrote Psalm 3. Many are my foes, he said. Many are my opponents who rise up against me. Nevertheless, I lay down and I slept because I will not be afraid of what 10,000 will do to me. Do you understand that? There's more of us 
than there are of, of them. This is a text that you can take with you into a crowded room when you don't know anybody there. I don't know about you, but I, I always feel a little bit edgy and uneasy when I walk into a room where I don't know anyone and they don't know me. I feel a little insecure. I know that my task there is to befriend and to impart truth and to love people, and I want to shrink from it. I want to go sit in the corner. It's the way I'm, that's the way I'm made, and, and I have to remember this text. It's more of us. And there are them. I can remember those days when I was at Berkeley and very often I and another friend were the only men in the class, the only people in the class that had that took the scriptures seriously. We were studying the Bible, but no one really gave God the time of day in those classes. And there was the air was thick with hostility toward the gospel. I can remember how intimidating that was to me. And, and many of you were in classes like that and Universities, high schools, junior highs in this, in this area. I just want to tell you, there are more of us than there are of them. And then there are those times when we're faced with absolutely overwhelming odds when we get that letter from the IRS or from the bank or from an attorney. There are more of us than there are of them. One of my favorite stories came out of the war in 1974 between Israel and the Syrian uh, army and the Egyptians. Uh, the Israeli army was up on the Golan by that time, and there were some uh, artillery observers, forward observers, two uh, young Jewish men that were in a foxhole. They'd been told, the army up there had been told, that a reward would be given for any Israeli soldier who captured a Syrian soldier, captured him alive and brought him back because they needed intelligence uh, from that uh, area. And they were told they would be given $100, 100 Israeli dollars for every Syrian that they captured. So these two men were up there in their foxhole and they were down in the hole waiting for morning and somehow the word got out to the Syrians that they were there and and they were surrounded by Syrian soldiers. They sent an entire company of soldiers to surround them, capture The next morning, one of these young men stuck his head up out of the foxhole and he looked around and he saw hundreds of Syrian soldiers lying in the sand with their AK-47s aimed right at his head and armored vehicles with with 50 caliber machine guns mounted on them, aimed at their foxhole, everyone looking at them, and he put, drew himself back down into his hole, and he nudged his buddy, and he said, Wake up, baby, we're rich. <laughs> I love that story because it, there's a truth in it for us. There's more of us than there are of them. It doesn't make any difference what the odds are that you're facing today. Hell is nigh. God is nigher. Circling us with hosts of fire. That's a truth you can believe in. Let's pray. Father, by faith we want to lay hold of this truth. It seems incredible to us. Impossible to believe, but... We ask you to open the eyes of our heart to perceive the realities that cannot be seen, to see what otherwise cannot be seen. 
We pray by means of your spirit that we would see these invisible forces of God, the angels, sent at your command to deliver us, to rescue us. Bring that truth into the realm of of reality for us. Help us to know that when we face these situations that are so intimidating, that cause us to freeze out of fear, that keep us from saying what we know we should say or being what we know we should be. When we feel utterly outclassed and outmanned and outgunned and outmaneuvered and we really have no one to whom we can turn as a resource, just help us to know that there are more of us than there are of them. Thank you for this great liberating truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.